Hello and welcome to Carefully Taught, teaching musical theater with Maddie and Kikau. A podcast to discuss musical theater pedagogy and to create a community of sharing amongst musical theater educators. I am so excited about today's guest, uh, Rose Van Dyne, um, as part of our, our two-part series on early new career musical theater educators. Uh, Rose is not only a dear friend, but she is going into her final semester of her MFA in vocal pedagogy. She is um, continues to perform both on stage and in the pit, most recently in the Broadway production of 1776. She is the I think her title is the Administrative Assistant of the Musical Theater Educators Alliance, which you've heard Kikau and I talk a lot about. And she was a colleague of mine last year when she taught a class at California State University, Chico, where I teach. She was the very first teacher of the class that I created called Social Justice in Theater. Uh, when we decided to hire somebody from off campus that uh, could talk to students freely uh, without the uh, the over hang of the power structure of the the professor being in the room um she was the first person that i thought of and that i trusted with with this brand new class that is now required for every single musical theater major and theater major on our campus rose welcome to carefully taught teaching musical theater with maddie and kikau hey nice to be here <laughs> we are so excited to have you here um give our listeners a little um kind of like behind the scenes, like how do you, how how do we find you here doing all of these amazing things that you're doing? Sure, well, um, I love the arts. I think we all love the arts. I, I, um, I studied musical theater and piano in my undergrad. And then right after that, I moved to New York to be um, working professionally as an actor, a music director, um, and as a teacher. I did that for about three and a half years and then decided to go to grad school and then I was able to connect with the two of you when I um, got this job at MTEA, which has been so amazing i've been there um, about a year and a half now. And um, yeah I just am super passionate about um, arts and arts education and I it's really important to me to try and delve into as many facets of it as possible, because I don't like to pigeonhole myself in just one way i'm so passionate about many things and I just try to pursue them all because why not. Uh, Rose, you are going to be such a sought after commodity. Sorry to use that phrase, but like as you graduate uh, with your MFA, you are so talented and so smart and such a force. You know, you're going to have your pick of higher education jobs uh, around the country. I have no doubt. And I also know because I've already started saying, you know, Chico could be a really good fit. I also know that you don't want to jump straight into teaching that you have other aspirations as well. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what your plans are, you know, and and what you're hoping to get out of your after you graduate. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I always knew that I wanted to teach higher education. I feel like I've known that since I was like 16. I just wasn't sure in what capacity. I didn't really um, anticipate even going into the arts at that time. Um, but I just, I think like a lot of people when the pandemic started kind of rethought about the structure of my life and my timeline and ended up going to grad school sooner than I expected. Um, and so that goal of teaching higher education is still the same, um, but I do still feel that I have these, these precious years of wanting to perform and be like in the heart of the industry, which can also help 
um, add like professional experience that will further aid my students when when that time comes of wanting to be more full time in higher ed. Um, so yeah, in the near future, I see myself continuing to work freelance um, in these areas of musical theater and, and musical theater development, most likely based in New York City. Um, but I am also super, super excited for the chapter of my life of, of working full time at an institution where I can um, uh, create change at a, at a more like um, micro and tangible level. Um, I love to work with students, working with people one-on-one -on -one, um, is, is a huge passion of mine. And, and I'm not sure when it will come, but I am confident it will at some point. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the performance side. So give us, um, you know, your most recent experience in 1776 on Broadway. You were also part of the um, ART company. Um, so can you just um, share a little bit about that entire experience and, and how you got to where you got. Yeah, well, it's um, one of those funny things of when I decided to apply to grad school, I was only going to apply to NYU because I wanted to stay in New York City so badly. And then I ended up also applying to Boston Conservatory of, of just saying, well, you should not just only apply to one school. What happens if you don't get in? You know, I just as out of practicality. But then as I um, learned more about the school and more about the program it ended up being the right fit for me, but it was just so hard to leave New York to come here to Boston. I, it was a really, really tough decision. Um, but it's only because I lived in Boston that I was hired at 1776 at ART because they were looking for local understudy hires. They weren't able to bring in people from out of town. So it's one of those kismet things. It's like, well, of course, I only got my Broadway debut because I left New York. <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, my my individual experience at 1776 is very unique because I'm the only company member, barring there was like an, an emergency situation in the last few weeks where they brought in some people from the tour. But um, up until that point, I was the only one who had never been rehearsed. And actually the tour people were rehearsing for the tour. So I think that might still be true then. Um, the company rehearsed in New York for a month and then came to Boston. I, I only joined them on the first day of tech here. Um, and then I was in the production all summer as an understudy, but I happened to go on for 63 out of the 69 performances. So that was crazy. Um, and I really, really grew to love the company so much. They knew they were transferring to Broadway. I stayed in Boston to start my fall semester. The show opened, they rehearsed, you know, for their six weeks and opened the show. And then um, they found themselves in need of coverage because of COVID. Um, and so they called me again. So both of those situations, I came and was a part of the company, but never rehearsed. <laughs> um, and then I was with the show for about eight weeks. Um, yeah, and then it just closed um, here at the beginning of January. So it was a wild, crazy ride, um, but I fell in love with the company. That was the best part. Uh, everybody involved, all of the cast and crew, they were just so, so kind and sweet at both locations. So I really, really loved it and, and was happy to be there. Rose, when the show went back into rehearsals um, between the the Boston and the New York production, how much changed? I know there were some changes in the cast, but um, did, the, did the show itself change that much? Yeah, there were. Yeah, there was one huge cast shift um, of Carolee Carmelo joining the Broadway production. But in terms of like content, um, I would say like three of the numbers got restaged 
and um, small things. It, it wasn't huge, huge changes, um, enough that they felt confident that even though I hadn't rehearsed in New York, that if I watched you know, a week of performances on Broadway, that then I would be able to step in with no rehearsal. So um, they were, honestly, it was kind of like the, the changes that were made were an understudies nightmare kind of changes, just because it's like, oh, on beat three, you're gonna raise your right hand instead of your left. And I just spent all summer putting into your muscle memory one thing. Um, but at the end of the day, no, the, the changes weren't extraordinary. I do have to follow up because, you know, we were simultaneously planning the MTEA conference and you were dealing with finals like you were still in school during your Broadway run. So how did you balance that? Oh, it was absolute insanity. I don't know how I did it either. Um, those eight weeks were really crazy October through December because um, we were in eight show week schedule. Um, understudies were also rehearsing. Yes, I was planning this MTA conference that was to happen at the beginning of January. Um, and then I was lucky enough that the dean of my school here at Boco worked with me so that I was able to um, do my finish the second half of the semester remote. Um, so I was zooming into classes on my day off Monday I was in eight hours of zooms and I was zooming in before rehearsal and on my dinner breaks writing my papers and trying to coordinate with my classmates and it was just a lot I feel like every minute of every day was having to be intense focus in order to just get things done. I just want to publicly apologize for being um, maybe not answering an email um, immediately because I once I realized what you what you were handling I was like oh my gosh because because really Rose was like the partner in crime when it came to putting the conference together so thank you so much and I'm sorry <laughs> no apology <laughs> necessary <laughs> it was so, a lot Rose um I don't know how far we want to go down this rabbit hole but the you know the show is not without its controversy and um there were definitely some things in the media and in social media about the show and some 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 issues with that process the process of putting it together i when you when you look back at the whole experience are you going to i mean uh, it's a kind of a hard question are you what are you going to take away from this broadway debut and this incredible experience that you had in boston with all of the moving parts and things that were bubbling up throughout the process um, well, as this is, yeah, my, it's, it's not the first Broadway production I've worked on. I also was lucky enough to work on Waitress a few years ago on Music Team. And I would say that working behind the table and then here being a cast member, I just, I just learned so much. I don't know if it's because of my age, because it's, it's my first entry points into these things, but I thought I knew a lot about the industry and i didn't <laughs> there's just something so different about hearing stories told from like my professors um you know who happened to be in the industry 30 years ago versus like being in it yourself of what's happening right now it's a totally different ball game and and feeling the ramifications of of others choices on your own personal life and your work career are just um very very different so i learned a lot about um uh, the hierarchy of theater, business of theater, um, how it really is all about money. <laughs> At the end of the day, you could say a lot of different things, but my experience was almost every interaction was, uh, there was a bottom line about money in some way. Um, and that I also learned about um, just people having difficulty 
aligning what their like intellectual morals and ethics might be of, of how they want the world to look versus then when it comes to that bottom line when it comes to having to please an audience, having to please a certain person that sometimes you will make sacrifices in that way, even if you can't say it to yourself, that um, your actions are showing that they're not in alignment with what you say you think is most important. Um, and that comes from all different people, from, from the cast, from, from um, the creatives, from the producers. I think all of us really struggle with that, of maybe having an ideal of what we want this business to look like. Um, but that it's not necessarily where it is now and that people act on 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 what is safest most often and that people who don't act that way are chastised quickly for it. Um, so it was a huge, huge learning experience and will definitely really impact how I will move into my next fingers crossed Broadway production whenever that is either behind the table or on stage because I've just learned how much you need to be advocating for yourself in order to um, be seen or heard in any capacity. That's incredible. Um, but the thought that comes up is that, that hyphenate energy, right? Um, I love that you mentioned the waitress experience and, and 1776. And then it's, I guess my question is like, how do you decide even, even though we are, uh, all things, how do you decide which projects you're going to take on this time? I'm going to be here behind the scenes this time. I'm going to put myself on stage. Yeah, I'm, I find myself still struggling with that because I get conflicting advice all the time about what it means to be a, a multi-hyphenate because most of the advice I'd say that I get is pick your lane and stay in it. Um, mostly because if you wanna work at such a high level in either category, um, it's very rare to have an opportunity to even get there and that if you want it to be sustainable that you want people to know you as that thing to like develop your own niche. Um, but I just feel that I want to work at a really high level in many different capacities and and that I am still always constantly working towards improving myself in each of those capacities it's not that I feel like i've arrived and I should be given these opportunities, but that um. I really just try to take every job as it comes and, and try to ask myself, um, what is it that I want to be doing? I think the way that I used to function is any job that came along, I would say yes, I would take it because it, it there's like a scarcity mindset of like, well, I don't know when the next one's going to come. But even in just my short amount of time, I've already started to feel that um, when you start saying yes to projects that you don't want to be a part of, that then you, it's gonna not be a great experience for you no matter what, and that you um, might, might be precluding yourself from being a part of something else that comes up that you can't say yes to because you're already obligated. Um, and so sometimes waiting um, and taking a second to really just ask yourself what it is you want to be doing um, is really important. So sometimes that is, uh, you know, for the next six months, I really want to focus on performing and I'll be mostly auditioning and then choosing to only MD or a company on the side to make a little extra cash. And sometimes it's the opposite. Like when I did Waitress, I wasn't auditioning at all because I wanted to really focus on my attention on that side of things. Um, and now when I go back to New York, um, my current thought is that I want to be focusing on the performing, keep that ball rolling because I was part of this show. And um, so I think it just, ebbs and flows and, and you kind of just make decisions based off of the opportunities that are presented to you. 
Rose, I've said this to you one-on-one, but I'm just going to say it for all of our listeners that, you know, when we talk about taking jobs and what draws you to different jobs and whatnot, I will take any job that allows me to be in the same room as you. I just think that you are an extraordinary human being. And I'm, I feel so much gratitude that MTEA brought us together. So we talked a little bit about uh, all of the different hats that you wear. And one of the places where some hats overlapped were was that at this this year's conference, annual conference in New York City, you did a presentation, yes, but you also facilitated a panel with a number of your 1776 colleagues. And um, a lot of things came up in that conversation. And there was a lot of conversation about uh, your your colleagues' experience with their musical theater education, and I'm wondering, you know, between that and and your your having your finger on the pulse of the industry, what do you want to see change about musical theater education? Um, and 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 how for some of our listeners that are are teaching right now, what can they take away from this conversation with you and apply it to their their programs or their private studios? Yeah, well, um, the first thing I'll say is that every experience is individual. So every story that you hear, um, like the one that I might say about my own experiences, is extremely unique, but can also speak to to wider issues that are present among a variety of people. So my personal experience is that I did study musical theater in undergrad and went through that program and that I am of mixed race. I'm half Korean and half white. And so that really, really colors the experience that I had, Um, but uh, I think it could be applicable on a wider scale. Um, I was encouraged in my undergrad to um, lean into this idea of ethnic ambiguity of that because of the way that I look and because of a of particular skill sets that I have that I could pass for um, Asian or Hispanic or um, or indigenous or all these things these are the words that were told to me um, and so I should utilize that and um, with that same kind of scarcity mindset of maybe it'll just help you get more work and that any work is good work because you need a job. Um, and we would have these guest speakers come in, even that weren't people of color, but would talk about how, oh, they were cut from this audition. And so then they went into the bathroom, put on a wig and changed their makeup and came back in to look a different way. And then they were kept for the next round. So these are the kinds of like encouraging stories that were shared with us to say that, um, however you can mold yourself to fit what you think the director or casting director is looking for is what you should be doing. I think the narrative is changing. I think the narrative is now come as you are and that who you are is what's going to be attractive to the person behind the table of saying, I'm interested in learning more about you and what it is that you bring to the table without having to change something. Now that's different than than having a skill set. That doesn't mean um, who I am is not a singer, so I will never sing. You know, that's different. That you that's a skill that can be developed as opposed to saying I'm going to look like a different race, which is not who I am. So um, I think that that something that current musical theater educators could be looking into themselves and into their programs is just how can you bolster and amplify each individual person and finding their personal strengths um, 
and encouraging them rather than making them feel like they're supposed to hide or change something about themselves to fit a standard mold, which is no longer industry practice, or at least it's not the way that we are trying to trend. I think that's most important. Oh my gosh, I love it. I love it. I wish um, that my educators said that, right? Like it, just even hearing you say it, I'm like, yes, that is exactly right. Um, you know, I kind of want to not really pivot, but just sort of turn into um, the development of the class that you did at um, Chico State. Um, I know Maddie um, provided this opportunity, but really you're you were all building that class from the ground up. Can you just talk a little bit about um, about the development of the class and or the the execution of the class, how it went and the student response? Yes, it was awesome. I had the best time. I loved it. Okay, so yeah, Maddie brought me in and, and because of um, kind of like going through the red tape of getting the class approved, he did have this syllabus that he had created, but then was very clear that I had free reign to take from it what I wanted and and add more things. So I was very grateful to have that base. Um, and Maddie and I were already on the same page about many, many things that we might, we might want to include in a course like this. Um, but I basically just went through and, and um, there were several things that I found that I wanted to be really important and include in this class structure of social justice and theater, which is, um, I wanted every student to walk away feeling like they had the skill to be a leader in a conversation surrounding these topics, um, these difficult topics. Um, I wanted every person to not feel that they um, had a sense of like moral superiority because they had taken the class and therefore could talk down on other people who maybe weren't as um, educated in certain ways. That was extremely, extremely important to me. Um, and then I also wanted everyone to um, gain these these other skills of we talked a lot about like um, um, community agreements, we talked about um, how to give uh, and and receive a true apology as a means of moving forward. Um, I really didn't want to be perpetuating in an idea of of um, social justice then being an equivalent of um, like cancel culture of of once someone says something wrong to you that therefore they're they're no longer a part of your existence. It was really important to me that that we're all trying to make steps moving forward, as opposed to using um, uh, certain terminology or 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 different like um, viewpoints as as an excuse for exclusivity. Um, so those were things that were really important to me. I was able to gather some like readings and um, and videos and and oh, another really important aspect was I I brought in guest speakers. I thought it was really important that. I'm only one person and can only offer one viewpoint and I wanted to be I wanted to be so clear to them that like just because I'm teaching this class doesn't mean I'm the expert in social justice and theater you are as equal of an expert as I am no matter where we are in our journeys because we are all working towards the same goal. So I could offer my perspective, but I thought it was extremely important to offer others of of playwrights of directors, but also people of different identities. Um, and I was really, really thrilled with the student response that they felt connected to these guest speakers as well. 
Um, and I wanted everyone to leave feeling that we are all colleagues rather than some sort of like um, hierarchical structure of teacher and, and student. So um, I feel that the class went really well. The students um, responded very well to it. And, and I was happy to meet two of my students who came and presented at the MTEA conference. Um, that was very sweet. Shout out to Mundo and Jesse. Um, so I just, uh, I had a great time and I hope that um, this type of class can be implemented in more um, institutions throughout the country who, who are studying theater because I think it's, it's an amazing thing that Maddie has done to create it as like a core class in, in these students curriculum. And I hope to teach it again. It's been the best. Yeah, and I can tell you from my perspective that the students re student response was out of this world. I mean, I've had multiple students say to me it not only changed their their the way that they handle themselves within the theater community and our community here at Chico State, but it changed their lives. Like they 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 there was uh, Rose was able to provide a, a section of the course or a centerpiece of the course about introspection and uh, working through one's own identity, and that's something that these a lot of these students had never had the opportunity to to do, um, and were never encouraged to do. And so the the student response here at Chico State was was phenomenal. I mean, so, so Rose, a little bit more about the class. I'm curious. Um, you, you spoke about what you brought to it. You also spoke about, you hope a similar course could be offered at more institutions. Um, what are the skills that, that you think are, were part of this class that, I mean, why, why does this class need to be offered at other institutions? What, 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 what are some of the elements that are lacking or were lacking in musical theater education that you would like to see a class like this specifically uh, uh, provide for students? Um, I'd say two huge things. One being um, self-advocacy, like I was just talking about in my own personal experience of being in the industry is that just the nature of especially as a performer entering the industry, I feel we're like people pleasers that you're just trying to do anything you can to get the person behind the table to like you and then hire you and that you'll morph yourself into all these different types of characters and shapes in order to fit that expectation and that um, as a young person discovering your own identity and and multifaceted like difficulties that any human but especially a young person might be going through in these like collegiate years um it's hard to be navigating that self-identity and also hearing every day in class change who you are to fit somebody else's expectation so I feel like this class really offers um, an opportunity for people to be asking themselves those big questions of, of who am I, who do I want to be, what is important to me, um, so that then they can bring those values with them in every situation, whether that be an audition room or whether it be a job interview if they don't go into theater or whether it's in their own family lives, um, just that they can feel that they can speak on their own behalf um on some of these more difficult issues so i would say self-advocacy is one um and then another one is this this idea of like um like an aim for camaraderie as opposed to an aim for superiority um especially with uh you know i think the way 
there are some people who talk about social justice. They talk about it in a way of of saying, you know, I'm just and you're not. I'm I'm you're racist and I'm not. Um, and that that kind of like black and white thinking is really, really um, not helpful um, and perpetuates these further pillars of of um, white supremacy that we are trying to dismantle in every area of our lives. And so I think that um, that it's important to um, let the students have an opportunity to practice these skills in this class, in this um, like a, a safer environment of, of not like a work pressure, feeling like you're going to get fired if you say something, of being able to interact with each other and myself as the instructor in, in holding each other accountable, but also working towards um, forgiveness and, and steps forward. Rose, so much of what you just said, I want to unpack if we can. Um, but I don't, this isn't going to be a three hour episode. So I'm not sure how much we're going to have time for. I, you know, this idea at aiming for camaraderie and not uh, superiority. I love that statement. Um, I, and I'm wondering how you put that into practice. I, I heard you talk about role play or, or giving students the opportunity to, to work through some of these things. But I know that I find myself not always responding to the pushback uh, for my fight for anti-racism and equity and inclusion. I don't always respond with the graciousness that I should. And I'm wondering how you teach students, if you could talk a little bit about how you teach students how to bring people closer aiming for camaraderie, as opposed to pushing pe people further away in this superiority sort of same. And I also want to talk about the phrase white supremacy, but we're going to circle back to that. Okay, great. Well, <laughs> first thing I'll say, it's really hard. It's really, really hard because what I also am not trying to say is like shut down your emotions about the situation and always lead with kindness because it's your job too, because you're trying to, to do this thing that this person can't. I, I, think that it's really, really difficult and, and that I'm not saying that at all. But what I um, what I encourage the students to do is to be able to express those emotions in whatever way that, that you feel is necessary, but that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be directed at that person, that you can be releasing these emotions in a different way um, so that you're still feeling like you can process what it is that if you felt wronged, then you were wronged and, and that you can um, uh, take full like time that you need to process that. Um, but that at the end of the day, what is going to be more effective is is to be finding a way to bring that person to a mutual understanding rather than attacking them and then them getting defensive. Um, and then the conversation goes nowhere. So this is something that I still struggle with too. Definitely in my personal life, it's way easier to just like um, lash out as soon as as somebody says something that that um, disrupts your way of thinking or, or hurts your feelings. But um, sometimes it's like playing chess, you have to just think like two steps ahead to ask yourself, what is it that that you really want? What is your true end goal? Is your end goal to hurt this person and make them feel stupid? Or is your end goal for that person to be your teammate and collaborator so that you can keep doing good work um and it's hard to respond to something that's two steps ahead and not the one that's right in front of you but that's the way i try to think about it 
Okay, so uh, Kikau, sorry, but I, I, if we could talk about the phrase white supremacy, because it's one that came up at the conference a lot. It's one that um, you just mentioned. Uh, I was hoping you would, because um, it's a it's a term that I am comfortable with. Uh, however, I hear people that have similar identities to me, cis, white, straight men, hear that term and they bristle, they push back, they get defensive. Um, and I, and, and then they shut down and they don't hear what we're talking about with that term. I, I'm a believer that um, language evolves and that using the phrase white supremacy to talk about the inherent power structure issues within our our industry um that that that's a productive word for me it's it's a word that helps me understand what the issue is but then i have colleagues and friends that hear that term and picture people you know um uh i don't i don't need to use disgusting imagery but you know uh have a very different response to it and are that gets hung up on that term uh and what that term meant say 50 years ago how would you respond to somebody who uh approached you after you had just used that term like you know white supremacy and 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 the and the world that we live in and say oh you're calling me a white supremacist i you know um how how do you how do you bring those people in rather than pushing them further apart further away great question well here's one thing that i'll say first which is that um you know, I've been talking a lot about like what it means to be exploring your own identity and asking yourself the hard questions. I think people of color, um, people who live outside the gender binary, people who are part of these more marginalized groups are asking themselves these questions every day in one capacity or another in every interaction they're having, but that people who are a part of the majority identities don't ask themselves these questions. Even if you are white, if you are male, if you are cis, if you are straight, it is just as important or perhaps even more important for you to be asking yourselves these same tough questions. What is it like to be white in this society? What is the history of being white in this country? How does being white affect my everyday life? Um, you could say the same things about the other things. What does it mean to be straight? How do I benefit from it? These are really, really important questions that that are often not asked. People don't ask them of themselves. They leave it for other people on, on the margins to be talking about. And I think that if someone were to truly ask themselves those questions, then they would be able to more easily think about well, even if it's not me individually and how I feel about my own morals and values, um, I can see how my identity is part of a larger story that has been happening for decades or centuries in this country or millennial in this world. So um, it's really difficult to separate yourself from a larger group of, of what it is that that represents throughout history. And we all want to be the hero in our own story. We all feel that we are the main character and are walking through life 
with the best of intentions, doing everything the way that we should. It's difficult to accept something um, that you feel doesn't align with how you see yourself. But I think that is the important part about asking these questions is, is it's not then saying a word white supremacy and saying that you're a part of it doesn't mean that um, that you personally consciously on purpose did something that you would associate with what that phrase white supremacy means from 50 years ago, 100 years ago. But it is your unconscious benefit from what those people did that is perpetuating it. Um, and that's the line of distinction is people talk about like, well, I didn't intend or, or I didn't know or I didn't all these things. But if you're trying to work past um, a society where that is like the um, inherent ideology that is embedded into every possible aspect of life, it is your obligation to not just sit idly and benefit, but rather to actively work against to aid those next to you who not only don't benefit, but are actively harmed by it. So it's only by um, consciously trying to work against it that you can say that you are part of the solution and not part of the problem. That's amazing. That's the best way I've heard that unconscious benefit. Um, that's so it's that's that's so right and feels um, like even I'm imagining people listening to this podcast needing to rewind that and play it again to hear to hear the phrase because everything you said truly is it's actually so um pointed and neutral like here's just fact which i think is is wonderful well i don't um, even remember what i said i blacked out so someone it, write it down and quote me in an article yeah, yeah. <laughs> it'll happen it'll happen um i you know you you're you're talking about self advocacy as a quality right or something that people can work toward and um, when we talk to prospective students, we ask a question that's something like, um, you know, what do you look for in your collaborators? However, you identify as an artist or as a as a um, as an actor or as maybe a director or producer type. And I'm curious in a in a way to frame um, perhaps even the the kinds of techniques that one would need to have as a as an actor or even as a, a musical director what would you look for in the collaborators that you're seeking to find um in projects or in life yeah i think this came up at the conference too of um i think a lot of people traditionally would choose to invite collaborators in that already confirm their own beliefs you know what I mean? It's like, oh, I'm directing the show and I'm going to have an assistant director who loves every idea I have. And so really their job is just like to make you feel better about the choices that you were already going to make no matter what. So um, I would say for myself, the opposite is true. Um, not that I'll, I'll take someone that's like, you know, like aggressively against every single one of my choices, but more so that I can respect their artistic vision and contribution, even if it's in contrast to mine. And then at the end, it makes the art better rather than making my ego feel better. <laughs> just be really, just be really uh, honest with yourself as you're like bringing someone onto your team. Are you doing it because it's going to help your ego or because it's helping the project? So um, I think that's the first thing I would say. 
Amazing. Um, and I laughed out loud uh, as I think about uh, assistants that I, my favorite assistants always seem to think I was a genius, um, but you're absolutely <laughs> right. I mean, through, through the challenge and the collaboration, that's where better stuff comes out um, and a better experience and, and us director type, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's nice to think that we're still being challenged so that we can grow. Um, so I love that that perspective. So, uh, Rose, we always end our episodes by asking our guests what, uh, what resources, what recommendations for resources that they have that they can share with our listeners, uh, to, to enhance their classrooms, enhance their, their development as, as musical theater people and educators. What, what recommendation do you have for us, uh, and our listeners today? Great question. Okay, I thought a lot about this because I really thought of like 15 different things that I could say in a lot of different capacities. Um, because I, I think the core of what I feel that any one of these resources that I would recommend is trying to get at is just of bringing in a, a wider scope of understanding, even outside the world of musical theater. I thought of some resources that are just like how to be a, like a more well-rounded human to help contribute into um, like the future of theater education. But the one that I ended up settling on was this um, visibility report. Um, it was created by the Asian American Performers Action Coalition, AAPAC. And um, this particular visibility report is is for the years of 2018 to 2019, and um, it's about racial representation on NYC stages. So it's this really great, like 127 page PDF that talks um, a lot about statistics um, and cold hard numbers um, about representation in New York City. So. Not only does it talk about like percentages of people of color who are performing or directing or music directing or all these things, but it also talks about a lot of nonprofit theaters in New York and and like the salaries of of the artistic director artistic directors of of each of them and it's just really giving you some numbers to look at what is happening in the industry as a snapshot in that year. Um, to kind of fight against these narratives that I think a lot of people um, still are talking about. Like um, as more people of color are taking on roles that maybe were traditionally cast white, something I've heard a lot from my peers as well when I was sitting in a cattle call at, at 500 per all um, next to all these girls and they go, oh, well, you know, since I'm a white girl, I just, I'm just like not in right now. They're probably trying to give it to this person. I've heard that many, many times. So. That's one story that I feel that these types of numbers can help say that's not actually true of not all of a sudden all these roles are being given to people of color, it is still the vast 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 majority of everybody on this on this visibility report are white the people that are getting paid the most getting seen the most are white. So um, I just think that this is really great for theater educators, because if you're sending your students out into the industry now perhaps an industry that or a location that you were never part of or that you were a part of a long time ago. I think it's um, really, really important to um, not be sending them in blind um, so that they don't feel that they are um, not prepared for what is happening right now when they get there. So this visibility report is awesome. You can just Google it and find it. 
Well, we'll put it in the show notes. If you can shoot that over to me in an email, I can, I can absolutely get our listeners uh, that. Um, Rose, I mean, uh, my only disappointment from this interview was that when Kikau said, uh, you know, how would you describe a collaborator that you wanted to work with? Your answer wasn't, well, their name was Maddie Miller. Uh, and that's, that's the criteria. <laughs> um, but I, I won't take it personally. Um, you're amazing. I don't know how you accomplish everything that you accomplish. I think, you know, you are such a force and I am so excited to be able to watch your, your career and maybe participate in it from time to time. But what a, what a great conversation. Um, Kikau, do you have anything else that you wanted to bring up? Well, just, just love. Thanks, Rose, for doing this. And I'm I'm excited for, for our listeners to hear what you have to say. Yeah, thank you both. I, I talk to you both, I feel like, all the time. Yes. This is just such a great way to, um, to continue these conversations we're having anyway. So I love it. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Rose. You're the best. The Maddie and Kikau Podcast Show. The Maddie and Kikau Show. The Maddie and Kikau Podcast Show. Music for Carefully Taught was provided by Joshua Haig. For more information, visit joshuahaigmusic.com.